The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Good morning. Our scripture this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. Uh, I'll read verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. If you uh, follow along with me in your Bibles or on your phones. Verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it shows us what is in our own hearts and how it directs us to you. Please direct us to you this morning. Show us the areas in our lives where we are not pursuing you and pierce us with your word. In your son's name we pray, amen. You know, one of my favorite things about the Bible is its cohesion. We can see Jesus through the whole thing from start to finish. He's the pinnacle of scripture. Everything before him looks forward to him and everything after looks back at him. Jesus is promised in the garden as the snake-crushing hero who descends from Eve. His death is foreshadowed by Isaac's death on the altar with his father Abraham ready to sacrifice his son Isaac, although he is prevented from doing so. Jesus is the blessing to all nations promised to Abraham. He is the groom seeking the bride of the church just like Isaac sought Rebekah with gifts and blessings. He's the good and true son of God, just as Israel or Jacob was called the good and true son of God. He is the rejected one who was glorified and who used his glory and blessing to bless those who rejected him, just like Joseph was rejected by his brothers but used his position as an advisor in Egypt to bless his brothers and their families in the famine. Jesus is the spotless lamb who was slaughtered, whose blood is a covering for us to protect us from coming judgment. Just as the lambs were killed for the first Passover, whose blood was painted on the doorposts and on the lintels of the homes of the Israelites in Egypt. Jesus leads his people out of spiritual bondage, just as Moses led Israel out of physical bondage in Egypt. Jesus intercedes for us, just as Moses interceded for Israel. Jesus is the well of living water, who is always ready to provide for us and sustain us in our time of need. Just as the Israelites were provided water in the wilderness, 
even from the rock, which, as Paul notes in our passage, was Christ. Jesus is the bread of life, just as the Israelites had the manna up here in the wilderness. Jesus told us to eat the bread of his flesh and drink the wine of his blood as our sacrificial offering to God, just as Israel would eat the meat of the lamb's sacrifice to God and drink the drink offerings to God. All of these things describe, and Paul in our passage describes our spiritual heritage. And Paul points out to us that this isn't plan B, this has been the plan all along. These, these things happen to our, uh, to our fathers, as Paul writes, for our benefit. It was always God's plan to send a Messiah. That Messiah was prefigured throughout Israel's history so that Israel would be ready and recognize him when he came. And this spiritual heritage that we have inherited as the Gentile church allows us to be grafted into the covenant community. Throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is urging the Corinthians uh, to stay the course, to become who they are, showing them their true identity. And in this passage, he's showing them their heritage as part of that identity. Look who you've come from, he says. You're continuing on a 4,000-year-old tradition of faith in the one true God. And we have the examples of 4,000 years of other faithful servants and unfaithful servants whose stories are our tutors. That's what Paul is saying. You know, recently DNA tests have become a popular way to determine your own cultural or racial heritage. Uh, Companies will send you a packet, normally with a cotton swab, where you swab the inside of your cheek, and you mail it back to them. When they get it, they analyze the swab, and they look at your DNA, and then they send you a very detailed report of uh, what percentages you are of what ethnicity and what, uh, what races and nationalities. Uh, I've not taken one of these tests, but I know that I'm, a, I'm three-quarters German, uh, which is the reason behind my very German last name, Wenzel. It's the reason I like precision instruments, and it's the, probably the reason why I like words that exactly describe a particular situation, like the word schadenfreude, which is a German word for that feeling of shame and joy that you get when something bad happens to somebody else instead of happening to you. You feel bad for the person, but you feel good that it wasn't you, but you feel bad that you feel good because that person got hurt. (laughs) You know, my wife Shana is part Norwegian, which explains her height, uh, her blonde hair, and that barbaric yop that she lets fly during a difficult workout. Our cultural or racial heritage has some usefulness for us, right? It tells us things we might tend to do or tend to like or tend to dislike. But it doesn't tell us everything. It gives us a picture into our proclivities, maybe, a glance into our capabilities and maybe even why we do some of the things that we do. It's a helpful factoid. But more important than our biological heritage is our spiritual heritage. 
Paul uses the examples of the nation of Israel, uh, specifically during the Exodus period, to tell us who we are and what we're capable of spiritually. So let's look at what Paul has for the Corinthians and for us this morning. Uh, Take a look at verses 6 through 12. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. The generation of Israelites that experienced the ten plagues and the exodus from Egypt did not get to experience the promised land. And we're told here that it was because of their lack of faith. They were brought out from an oppressive regime by an onslaught of miracles. And with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This generation experienced the Nile turning to blood the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the death of livestock, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, the death of the firstborns, the pillars of cloud and fire, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, the burning bush, the shining face of Moses, the giving of the law, the Ark of the Covenant, and the covering of the tent of meeting with the cloud of the presence of God. Not to, if this wasn't enough to form a foundation for faith that God would provide for Israel, well, I don't know what is. But we know the majority of that generation did not trust God, and as a result of their lack of trust and faith, they were not allowed to enter the promised land, but their bodies were scattered. Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You know, I'm the youngest of three kids, And growing up, I was always watching my older brother and older sister, whether they were doing good things and getting praised or doing bad things and getting disciplined. Every time they got rewarded for something good, I paid close attention and took note. But I paid closer attention when they were disciplined for doing something wrong. I can still remember an instance where I was very young. It's one of my earliest memories, crouching around the corner and listening to one of my siblings getting corrected. This is what Paul is encouraging us to do. He wants us to crouch around the corner and listen to the correction that the Israelites endured so that we won't make the same mistakes. Paul here lists actual historical instances in which Israel failed to have faith and their earthly punishment for those failures. And we have examples of behavior that God does want from us. We have these examples of, uh, of the Israelites, what, we, what God doesn't want from us. And we have examples of what God does want from us. In a few weeks, we'll look at uh, chapter 13, which lists the characteristics of love that we are to engender 
as we live our lives. We have the fruits of the Spirit described in the book of Galatians. That should be on display in our lives if we trust in God. So Paul has encouraged the Corinthian believers to avoid the mistakes that the Israelites made during the period of the Exodus. And the main sin that Paul discusses and one that we'll get into today is idolatry. Uh, the three points in the outline, if you've pulled it up, you'll see are, are Israel's golden calves, the Corinthians' golden calves, and our golden calves. You know, volumes have been written in the last 20 years about idolatry and what that looks like today um, and how to avoid that. I'd commend to you Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, as a useful and convicting guide. So let's look at the first point, Israel's golden calves. So this topic of idolatry, when someone brings this up, I don't know about you, but the first thing that I think about is the golden calf in the wilderness. So Israel had just been led out of exile and, uh, or out of uh, Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai to receive the law. He's up there for quite some time. He's up there for 40 days. And when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, Aaron, his right-hand man, project manages the construction of a golden calf. Now, in an effort to demonstrate some leadership, I think, they were, they were, they were a little bit probably worried about their future. Uh, Moses had been gone for a long time. They don't know what to think. They don't know what to do. So Aaron, probably in an effort to exercise some leadership, went around collecting gold from all the Israelites, which is exactly how the Israelites got it from the Egyptians. They went around door to door in Egypt asking them for gold, and the Egyptians said, here, take it. Make the plagues stop. So Aaron went around and collected all the gold, and he melted the gold down, and they fashioned a calf to either stand in for or represent God, we think. Some commentators say uh, that this was a representation of God, which is why Aaron said, behold the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Others argue that the calf actually represented a, another small g God that was worshipped in Egypt, and uh, others may have uh, argued that it was Baal who was worshipped in Canaan, where they were headed, the promised land. But whatever it was meant to represent by the Israelites, it was their misguided attempt to either thank God or uh, pray to a God of fertility and protection in a time where they were stranded in the wilderness with nowhere to go. They were fearing for their lives, and they were looking for security. They needed to worship, so they made something to worship. The Israelites of the Old Testament had some amazing experiences, but they kept veering off course. They kept worshiping other small g gods. They put up the golden calf in the wilderness. They worshiped Baal when they arrived in Canaan. They worshipped Asherah with poles, sometimes in, in uh, concert with Baal. They intermixed with the cultures around them and, and adopted the idols of their neighboring cultures. This may sound ridiculous to modern ears to actually worship a statue or some worship in some temple that has some representation of some being. 
One of the reasons that God commanded Israel to either completely drive out other people groups from the promised land or to wipe them out completely was that he wanted Israel all to himself. He wanted them not to worship other gods. He wanted them to worship only him. You know, just look at the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It's number one. Of all the law God gave to Moses on Sinai, it's like over 600, I think it was 613 commandments. The entire Mosaic law, he singled out 10 of the most important things up front. Here's what's on the tablets. These are the top 10. And number one is a commandment against idolatry. It was the most important thing for Israel to remember and for us to remember. Everything else is counterfeit. There is only one true God. Moving on to point two in your outline. Our text today was initially directed at first century Christians living in the Greek city of Corinth, who were surrounded by Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. According to second century author Pausanias, the landscape of Corinth was dotted with various temples uh, here and there. They were kind of throughout town. The most impressive uh, temple in Corinth was the temple of Apollo. And actually, if you were to visit Corinth now, you would still see seven of the Doric columns standing today. Athena, Hera, Aphrodite, Jupiter, Asclepios, Apollo, Octavia. These were all gods that, and there were more, that were worshipped in everyday life as part of society in Corinth. If you got sick, you would go to the temple of Asclepios, the Greek god of healing, and you would offer a sacrifice. If you planted a crop, you would offer a sacrifice to Apollo. You'd ask for a blessing of growth and high yield. This is a transactional approach to worship. A person would ask, what do I need? Whether that's wellness or prosperity. And then they'd ask, how do I get that? Which God do I pray to for that? Or a person would ask consciously or subconsciously, what do I fear? and then look for protection against that fear. The Corinthians had a pretty good system. They'd covered their bases. All the essential desires and fears that humans experienced during that time, and they had their own temple, they had their own God, they had their own altar. The Corinthians would go and pray or offer a sacrifice, their fears would be abated, maybe their desires would come about. Then the Corinthians would credit those results back to the God to which they prayed or sacrificed. These are very clear examples of idol worship that Paul addressed in his letters to the Corinthians. It was unambiguous. There were temples, they were worshiping at them, and there was little doubt here. Obviously, overt worship of Greek or pagan idols was problematic for Christians who were supposed to believe that there's only one true God. If there is only one true God, why were you participating in the, in the feasts in the temple of Apollo or, or elsewhere. Paul mentions, that, look, this is inappropriate for two reasons. First of all, if you're worshiping Apollo, you're breaking the first commandment. You're worshiping another God that's obviously sinful. And okay, if you're not worshiping that God, but you're having the feast there, maybe you're making another Christian stumble. And this is what the last few sermons have been about from Scrabeck and Carmichael and others. Now, Paul notes here in verses 19 and 20 
just to wrap this up quickly, this second point. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul is saying, look, Apollo, Athena, Asclepios, Aphrodite, these aren't real gods. They don't exist. They're statues. To the extent that they exist, they are demonic. So obviously meat offered to a god that doesn't exist doesn't have any meaning. But that's not to say that Satan would not love the worship of idols. He would not love to redirect the worship of God to the worship of something else. So what does this mean for us? Now we know more about the cross-cultural landscape and the interpersonal details of first century Christians a half a world away, speaking a different language 2,000 years ago. So let's take, a, let's take a moment and for this remaining time, let's do a spiritual gut check. Tim Keller, I mentioned earlier in his book, defines idols as this, and this is a long definition, so hang in there, but I think it's useful. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, uh, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It's anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it, without a second thought. It can be family and children. It can be career or making money. Achievement, critical acclaim. It can be saving face or social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty, your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue. Even success in Christian ministry can be an idol. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it's really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I've got worth. I'll feel significant and secure if I have that thing. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. I might touch a nerve here uh, with what I'm about to say, but if I do, that's probably good. And, and to be honest, I touched a nerve with myself as, as I was preparing for this. I'm going to encourage you to take a moment this week over Memorial Day weekend to get to a quiet place and examine your heart. Ask yourself what it is in your life that if God took away or if God gave you, that it would rock your faith to its core. What houses have you built on the sandy land? Where have you put your trust? What thing or person or status are you making sacrifices to in hopes that it will give you some reward or benefit 
that you can't live without. Keller also says, our hearts are idol factories. We were made to worship. It's our very purpose. Whatever our heart wants to worship in this world, it's more likely than not that we have taken a truth about God, found that truth to be true in in something else to a lesser extent, like cars or stuff or people or kids, and begun to pursue that truth in that lesser thing. Whatever good we're seeking, chances are it's it's a diluted form of what is fully concentrated in God. You know, a full bank account or investment account makes a person feel really secure. Like there's nothing that can really rock you. You're all set. But as anyone who had any investments in 2008 and 2009 can tell you, that feeling is an utter lie. Only God is the true rock that provides true security. A luxury car is very comfortable. You know, it makes you feel like you belong. It takes all your cares away for the few minutes you're in it. But God is more comfortable. And we do truly belong to him. It feels good to be accepted and affirmed by someone else, even if it's an illusion. But the God of the universe not only accepts you, he created you with you in mind. You may feel important when you exercise power over somebody else, even if it's justified. But we are the most important thing to the most powerful being in the universe. That's worth repeating. We, as humans, are the most important thing to the most powerful being in the universe. You know, maybe you've adopted some of the idols of American society today. I'll mention a few of these to kind of help you diagnose. But I'll I'll also mention their corresponding truths about God. You know, one of the pervasive idols in America today is Eros, the god of sexuality and sexual freedom. It's worth noting that Paul ties idolatry very closely to sexual immorality whenever he discusses idolatry. In the U.S., we don't sacrifice our children to Molech, the ancient Canaanite god, but we prefer to abort them before they are born so our lives will not be inconvenienced and our sexual freedom and impulses will not be compromised. But when we do this, we misunderstand the purpose of sex. We see it as a tool of empowerment and liberation when it was created as a tool of unification, a tool of combination where the two become one. You know, maybe you're working your tail off at the expense of your family and friends to earn as much money as possible because once your bank account hits six figures or seven figures or fill in the blank number, you'll finally feel secure. Listen to what the psalmist writes. I waited patiently for the Lord. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Only God can truly make you secure. 
You know, maybe you're sick and tired of all the discomfort this world brings, and you want to be insulated from the world, from other people, or from any discomfort or inconvenience at all. You just want to have that new car because you're sick and tired of having no AC on the way to work. You shouldn't have to put up with that. You deserve better. That's the attitude we have. Listen to Paul. He says, if that tent is our earthly home, is destroyed, he's talking about our, our bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heaven. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Our true comfort is in heaven with God. Maybe you worship at the temple of Artemis, the god of sex or pleasure. This might be true if you're addicted to pornography, something more and more com common, as Artemis is as close as whichever pocket we keep our smart smartphone in. You know, maybe this is rooted in a need for acceptance. Maybe it's rooted in a need to escape or a need to feel dangerous. Maybe it's rooted in a need to feel anything at all. You know, scripture shows us the intensity with which we are loved by God. Listen to these words from the Song of Solomon, which is meant as an allegory for God's desire for his church. You, church, have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. How beautiful is your love. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. That's how intensely God desires us. Maybe you worship at the temple of Zeus, a god of power. Maybe it comes down to it, and you're honest with yourself. That's what you want. Power disguises itself really easily uh, as, as other things like influence or, or uh, importance or maybe having the right friends. But really, the idolatry of power is as simple as wanting to control the behavior of somebody else. Maybe you want power because you've gone through life without any power. Maybe someone else has abused their power to your detriment. Maybe you want power because you feel you just know better than anybody else. Whatever the cause, scripture teaches that we are not to control others, but we are to be controlled by the Spirit and by the love of Christ. Maybe you worship at the temple of Athena, god of image. If you enjoy exercise, how would you feel if you could never work out again? Why do you exercise? Is it because you want to look good to somebody else? Are you spending a lot of money on clothes, on cars or stuff? Do you feel a rush when someone compliments you in some way? Scripture tells us we were created in the image of God. And when people look at Christians, when they look at you and me, they need to see the image of God. That's why we are called Christians, little Christs. Here's a common one in Colorado. We love to visit the temple of Gaia. We love the outdoors, myself included. If I could spend my whole day outside, I totally would. Any season, just give me the right equipment, I'm there. This one's sneaky too, because being in God's creation 
it's easy for us to say, well, we're worshiping in nature. Maybe that's true. But that one's also pernicious because it's very close to worshiping nature. Remember, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, as Psalm 24 says. Parents, maybe you worship at the temple of your children. The fifth commandment does not say, honor your son and your daughter so that it may go well with you. Although as a parent, I can say, sometimes giving in to the desires of a tyrannical child feels like the only way it could possibly go well with you. But examine whether your children are more important to you than your spouse, more important to you than your marriage. Are your children more important to you than God? Someday, Lord willing, your children will leave your house. And all the time you spent raising them will, be, will seem to evaporate. What will you feel like then? Paul writes, we are not our own, for we were bought with a price. We steward our children. We do not own them. You know, I've listed some examples here as a starter, but maybe it's something else for you. But ask yourself if there's a thing, a person, an activity. Maybe it's that cabin in the mountains, that private jet, that ride in first class. Ask yourself if there's a thing that if you lost it or lost the chance to have it, would you echo the words of Isaiah or, the echo, or echo the words of Job? Would you say, woe is me, for I am undone? Or would you say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, when I was in college, I got a scholarship to pay for me to go on a trip to Berlin for 10 days uh, with my German class. As part of that trip, we got to visit the Pergamon Museum. And of course, in German, Pergamon Museum is one word. Uh, and that museum houses one of the best known monuments of Hellenistic art, including the Pergamon Altar, which is enormous. It's 30 feet high. Uh, it, in, when it was in one piece, it was uh, 300 feet around or 100 meters around. And uh, they chopped it in half as they were excavating in the 1880s, and they reassembled it indoors. So you can go and you can see the half of this temple as though it were outside. The altar, which is that at the top of that staircase, is a giant set of marble stairs. There's columns all around. It's intricately designed and sculpted. It is beautiful. It has those friezes that go around the bottom depict intricate scenes of Greek mythology. And you know, it's, it's really stunning. You have Zeus fighting giants and, and other gods. And it has all those gods that, uh, or many of those gods that they would have been familiar with in Corinth. The Pergamon altar was likely used to sacrifice to any one of those gods. Um, it didn't have a temple as part of it. It was just an altar, so you'd just go and make a sacrifice. Its detail and scale illustrate the central role that worship plays 
in our lives. So if any of these idols sound familiar, as some of them do to me, I urge you to walk out of those temples, walk down the steps of the Pergamon altar, and walk into the Holy of Holies. Put down the good thing for the best thing. Now, I've also been privileged to have met President Bush a few times. My first job out of college was working as a low-level staffer in a low-level office at the White House. When I got to meet the president, uh, I, I got into the room with him. I wasn't staring down at my phone at a photo of him, thinking, oh, man, what a great guy. I put my phone down, and I shook hands with him. When we elevate power and acceptance and money above God in our lives, it's like we're looking at our phones, trying to experience the person in the photo when they're standing right in front of us. How ridiculous. And just as ridiculous as it sounds to us, to modern ears, that Israel chased after and worshiped these other gods, it's just as ridiculous for us to do so today. You know, we're ignoring God who's right in front of us. And we're picking up something he has made or something we've made, something that we think represents him. We're finding that thing that's ultimately true in God and true to a much lesser extent in something else. So Paul's saying whatever it is you find in this life to be worthy of your worship, your work, your concentration, your devotion, your determination, your grit, your purpose, your undivided attention. Anything you find here that evokes that level of emotion or action is a delusion of God. It's a very small reflection of what is found in God in abundance. That's because we were made by God to worship God. And throughout our lives, we go out looking to fulfill these desires that only God can satisfy. We were made with a purpose in mind. And when we redirect our worship towards something besides God, we fail to fulfill our life's purpose. We miss out on the fulfillment of those fundamental desires which are fulfilled in Christ. A final note here on uh, verse 13. But once you identify any idols in your life, Paul wants you to know something else, something eminently practical. You know, I, I like many others, found verse 13 to be um, just a key part of my teen years and college years. And uh, as a result, it's just been seared into my brain. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So think of Joseph, Joseph in Genesis again. This time he's been made second in command in Egypt, one of the greatest empires of the day. And the wife of another executive VP approaches him once, and Joseph demurs, and a second time, and Joseph demurs. And the third time, Potiphar's wife really won't take no for an answer. So she grabs him. And what does Joseph do? He leaves his robe behind, and he runs out of the room. That's a great picture 
for what we are supposed to do. There was a way of escape for Joseph. He could have said, ah, he could have totally justified himself. and said, well, she grabbed you. She forced me to do it. But he didn't. Public embarrassment and public indecency for Joseph was more important than his integrity. So if you find yourself in a situation when you're being tempted, tempted by one of these idols, tempted to shop online for something you don't need, tempted to look at that website that you know you shouldn't, you're tempted to gossip, you're tempted to feel superior or exercise your power over somebody else, just pause. Pause, say a quick prayer, and ask the Spirit to help you. Ask the Spirit to show you the way of escape. And then take the way of escape. After you take that way of escape, it's a good exercise to think back about why that was so appealing to you. What is it? What is it in my heart that I am fearing or that I am wanting so badly that I almost gave in to a very controlling desire? The best lies are based on the truth. And the best idols are based on God. Just as Jesus is stamped throughout all scripture from beginning to end, so is God stamped in our hearts from birth to death. He is the one our hearts desire even when we seek him in something else. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word from Paul. We thank you that you have oriented us from birth and from creation to worship you. Help, to, help us to identify in our own hearts those areas as they come up where we feel something is more important than you, something we pursue that's true and that's good, but that's not the best. It's not you. Help us identify those things. Work in us, Spirit, to convict us of areas of idolatry that we have in our lives and help us to submit to you as the one true God and worship you alone. In your son's name we pray, amen.